We'll be in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 43. Again, my name is John Wayne McMahon. It is good to be with you. If you're in the room or joining us online, either live or later on the week, thank you for trusting us with your time. If you're a visitor, if you're new to CORE, it is good to have you. Thank you for trusting us with your time this Sunday morning. If you are new, uh, you might not know that we're finishing up a sermon series on hospitality. Uh, It's the kind of the back to school, back to busyness, back to everything season, uh, at least in the church, but definitely in, in many aspects of our life. And hospitality is something that's really important. And so we wanted to jump in that. Um, even if you haven't been here, you can catch that on, on Spotify and catch up on YouTube and stuff like that. But even then, today's, I think, will speak to hospitality in a way that kind of carries it all. And so I'm glad you're here today. A few weeks ago, we started with a theology of hospitality. What is the word? What is scripture? What does God tell us about what it means to be hospitable. And then the next week we talked about hospitality in the family, those in our own family, but also in the family of God. For some of us, that might be harder than any of the others, right? Don't look at each other. Uh, And then the last week we looked at hospitality to the stranger. How do we go to those that are on the margins? How do we see those that the world might not see? And today we could title this any number of things, hospitality to those that are different than us, hospitality to the jerk, Again, don't look at each other. And in some ways, I think today will help us to see in ways that maybe we've been jerks and to love in the way that God calls us. And Jesus is gonna call us to that in Matthew chapter five. And so that's where we land today. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. So these are his words that he's sharing with us. Let's turn to scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard, it, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks again for your presence here in this space, and I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say, amen. I got to know this family really well in the previous church that I served. This family were those kind of volunteers that showed up to everything. They were involved in foster care and student ministry. They were greeters. They were on the prayer team. They were small group leaders. I thought they lived at the church. They just kept showing up even when I didn't have anything for them. They were just incredible. And and what I loved about them as well is they were the kind of people that when you were speaking to them, you felt like the most important person in the room. And then they would repeat that with everyone that was around them. It was incredible. By the way, if you ever encounter someone like that, get to 
know them because there's something in their life that drives that, right? There's, there's a history behind that love that has probably been through trials. And that was the case for this family. I wanted to get to know them and I, I started to ask about their story and meeting with them. And I, I learned not long after I got to this church and I didn't know this happened at the time or this family well, they had lost a college age uh, son of theirs uh, to a drinking a late night um, fraternity party that went way too far and he didn't wake up the next morning. Uh, and it was one of the hardest things, obviously, that they ever could imagine going through something that they could never see coming. And they came to find out that the fraternity and the school systems kind of made way for this kind of tragedy to happen. There wasn't enough fail-safes. There was not enough education. There was not enough conversation and dialogue that was going there. And, and they ended up finding out too, as this thing progressed, that there was an older brother in the fraternity that actually provided for all of the alcohol, uh, encouraged and kind of inspired the night that led the way it did. And so as they stepped into this situation, they had to face not just a tragedy, but a tragedy that some people were kind of responsible for, right? And I began to hear this story from them and what I found was something that was so incredible because even in this pain that was too much to bear, they knew that they had to let God's love shine through that. And so they began to advocate for other students, speaking to the fraternity and speaking to a school system that was almost didn't let them in because they were too afraid of getting sued, right? They didn't wanna be liable for it. And they still pressed in. And, and if that wasn't enough, this family took under their care the person that was responsible for or held responsible, at least in the sight of uh, the court of law, uh, of being responsible for their son's death. They began to speak to him and, and proclaim forgiveness over his life. As a matter of fact, uh, I got to pray with the dad the day before he was going to meet this young man who just finished his years long probation and everything came out of that. He was going to meet them at the graveside of his son to reiterate that they love him and forgive him and to give him a Bible and tell them about the love of Jesus that compels them to do that very thing. When I think about loving enemies, this is the kind of vision that kind of comes to mind. And maybe you know stories of those kinds of expressions of love. And really what we're gonna talk about in the coming moments is loving our enemy is in a way of loving them so they're not enemies, right? And they brought this person that had betrayed them and done harm and they brought them in close and loved them the way that Christ has. It's an incredible story. And for many of us, maybe we don't have those experiences or even the challenge to love that someone like that, but we have enemies, don't we? If we were to stop and to think about it, we have plenty of enemies. They're all around us. If you want to go down this rabbit trail, you can find how this applies to each one of us. Think about COVID or your hot take on vaccinations. Think about politics or church denominational disagreements. The clergy can tell you about what's going on in the Methodist church. We got enemies, right? Our own mediums of communication, they thrive over us having enemies. If, let me give you an example. If you were to turn on CNN right now, they would want to convince you that we are in a narrative that is climbing and going straight to heaven right now, right? That the other people that disagree with that, they're the enemies. If you turn on Fox, they're gonna wanna tell you that we are in a declining narrative and everything's going to heck, right? And they thrive over us believing that and building our walls higher because that's how they get ratings. 
Apply that to any medium of communication in your life and you will find that. And I get it. I know what it's like to have enemies. We took strengths finders just recently and one of my greatest strengths is belief. So when I believe in something, if you don't believe in that thing, I'm gonna run you over, right? That's the sin coming out of me, right? I just think that my belief is holy and if you disagree, well, you're just wrong, right? That's maybe not a strength. That sounds like a weakness, doesn't it? But somewhere there's a strength in there. But what we're gonna talk about today is how do we love our enemies, those that are different than us, those that are far apart, maybe those in our own families. How do we love in this time, in this challenging day that we live in, and more importantly, who are we called to love? And that's where this text comes in. As I said earlier, it's the Sermon on the Mount, maybe one of the biggest, greatest blocks of teachings, well-known teachings of Jesus our Lord. And this context is at the end, 43 through 48, is actually at the end of some specific teachings that are grouped together by similarities of the types of teachings. Beginning back with Matthew 5, 21, there's a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again. Jesus says, you have heard it said, X, Y, or Z, but I say, and he raises the bar. So in 521, he says, you have heard it say, you shall not murder, which is going back to their law, to the Torah, to the 10 commandments. You shall not murder, but I say that do not be angry in your heart for you are actually committing that very thing when you have anger in your heart. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone that looks at another lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. You have heard it said that anyone that divorces their wife must give her a certificate, but he raises the bar and says, no, you don't walk away from this covenant. You have heard it said, do not swear an oath that you can't keep, or you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say, if anyone slaps your cheek, give them the other one. And then there are smaller ones, even wrapped up into this series. And then they get to our text, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. In our text, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, what Jesus is doing here in these situations is mostly pulling parts of their Torah, of their law, of the commandments that have been given to him, the practices that they've had from the beginning. He's saying familiar, and then he's raising the bar on each one of them. And the first one, murder, is straight from the Ten Commandments, of course. And what he has said already in this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember that he says, I have not come to I've not come for us to abandon the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And so in other words, when he says, do not murder, but also do not have hate in your heart or anger in your heart, he is saying that I'm not just after behavior modification. When Yahweh God in Exodus says, do not murder, he wanted us to be people that wouldn't murder, not that we just wouldn't murder. Does that make sense, y'all? He was after holiness there from the very beginning. We read Sermon on the Mount. We think Jesus has like this new law that's coming in, this new standard, but this is what existed from the beginning. God wanted his people to be holy and different than the world around them. He wanted to be people that would work things out. He wanted to be people that would be faithful to their spouses. He wanted them to be people that would hold regard of God above all of the other things in their life. And what Jesus here does is he shines a bright light on the area where they've just tried to modify their behavior and be good people, but they are still living in the same thing that the law was trying to stop them from getting to. And so now you just got like a church curmudgeon that's not committing any major felonies, right? 
And Jesus is trying to press into that. And so he says, love your neighbor, even the enemy. Let's break down what Jesus is getting at in our passage. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, this is not exactly the Old Testament quote. He's quoting law and some of the others. But if you go back to Leviticus 18, where he's pulling this love your neighbor out, he doesn't say it's okay to hate your enemy, all right? That's, a, that's an addition. I think what Jesus is actually doing is he's identifying the place where religious people take a good word and then manipulate it to fit how they live in the world. And so when it says, love your neighbor, after some time, the Israelites are like, all right, but she ain't my neighbor, right? Right, and so Jesus is gonna draw their attention right here on this, that hate your enemy is never explicitly said, but it would have been assumed justification that comes out of this teaching. This is how we treat our neighbor. We have to love them, but we can hate that person over there. And we may not agree with that theoretically, but functionally, I think we might live in that way in many ways. And so Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And check this out. Check what he adds onto it. Look at verse 45. Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. What he's saying here, Jesus says, it, this is what it means to actually be children of the father, to have love for your enemies, identity and characteristic. In other words, Jesus is not saying this is just a good idea. You should practice this in the world. No, he is saying to be children of God is to love your enemy and to pray for those who wrong you. Friends, let's be honest, that's challenging for me today, right? To live as a child of God is actually to live in that radical place of love. It's not just some high standard we wanna to get to someday. He says, no, this is your identity and your characteristics is to love those that maybe even wrong you. So why would we do this? Well, Jesus gives two reasons. The first one he says is because God does. This is the way God loves. And it seems like a duh, but he's gonna set the standard for us right from the beginning. And then he says, because what you're doing, the second reason is because what you're doing is what the rest of the world is doing. Pagans and tax collectors, right? We'll talk about them in a minute. This is the way that God loves. Look at 45 again, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even God provides general grace and life to those who are evil. This is how God loves. This is God's economy of love. And that frustrates us, I know. That's hard for us to understand. And I'm gonna get ahead of myself a little bit, but in a moment, Jesus is gonna say, you're to be like God. You're to be this way. This is how you're supposed to live. So that's where he starts. But why does God love those who do wrong? I can't get my head around that, it's hard. I know that's a hard reality. Let me give you an example of when this, I came to this face to face. Years ago, we were in the Dominican Republic with, um, we took some high school kids on a student ministry trip. Lauren and I were uh, interns at this time and we were serving kiddos, working with another youth pastor. And we went to the DR to serve with some missionaries from our church that were helping a community with medical care, but also an organization that were helping Haitians that live in the DR. There's a lot of Haitians that live in the Dominican Republic move out of this tent city Samaritan group, blue tent 
tarps. They had been living there since, I think, a hurricane. It was just terrible uh, living situations. They were trying to get them out of there. One by one, we're moving the family into the cinder block home village that was right next door. And so we wanted to be a part of that. And our youth group raised money so that we could pay for one of the houses. And our plan was to go over there and dig out, uh, dig out the foundation and be a part of pouring the concrete. And we would meet the family and we would pray over them. And so we get there and we're working hard for a couple days and um, we dig out this ground and we pour the concrete in and we're ready to meet the family and we're ready to bless this thing. And a uh, missionary comes over and he goes, I, th- I think there was some kind of a mistake. This wasn't y'all's house. This is someone else's uh, your house is supposed to be over here. Do you want to dig out that foundation too? And I'm like, what is going on here? We're getting hustled. And I think they wanted some good labor for a couple extra days. And so we're like, yes, we really wanted to be a part of building our own house, digging out the foundation, pouring the concrete, meet the family and pray with them. And so we did that a couple days, dug this out. And then at the end, of, when we were getting close to finishing, some of our leaders, uh, Lauren, myself, um, an, what, the youth pastor, a missionary, we were going to go finally meet the family that we're going to get to move into the center block house. And so we go over there and when we knock on the tent door or get the person's attention, he comes out and immediately we saw something that was unexpected. Inside the tent was like a king size bed with a full mattress, one that you probably have in your home. Not what you would expect for a family in this tent. Most of them were living on closet space on the ground and sleeping where they could. And, and that was odd. And there was Christmas lights hanging on the bed and around the tent and uh, weird lighting and stuff. It, it didn't look like a tent home in a slum. It was very interesting. And so we walked away confused and, and um, they told us to come back later. We can meet the rest of the family, the wife and, and the girls that were there. And so later on, we come back and, and the, the girls are there and they come out and we see something unexpected with them. Their, their hair is styled, their nails are done. They, they look very done up in a way that you, we hadn't seen in the village. And knowing we were confused, one of the missionaries pulled us aside and says, I'm pretty sure that the dad is trafficking mom and daughter, the oldest daughter, at least. That's what's happening in this home. And I remember thinking like, nah, we can't build a house for them. Like maybe the women, is there something we can do to help them? But we're, we're not building a house for them. Is there another family? There's 50 other families that need a center block home. We can't go tell the youth group that this is who we're building a house for. And as we wrestle with this, one of the missionaries came forward and he shared this verse with us. And he said, listen, God brings the sun up on the good and the evil. He allows rain to come to the righteous and the unrighteous. And I said, yeah, but I'm not God, Right? <laughs> Friends, if, we, if it was left to our choosing, there would be people that would receive our love and there would be people that wouldn't, at least if it was left to our sinful nature. But God's love goes to even the undeserving. And we don't know what happened to that family. We will never know. We don't know what God might have used because we still gathered them together. We still told them that God loves them and prayed over them. And we still tried to do our best to be there for them. But what we learned that day is God gives love out freely without the expectation of reciprocity because he can and because he's free to do it. And the challenge here, Jesus says, is I want you to love like that. This is radical love of God. 
And then the second reason that he tells us is I want you to love like this because I want you to love different than the world around you. The second argument for why we love our enemies is he does something rhetorical in arguing from this side, gets your eyes to the standard. This is how your God, the creator God loves. And then he comes back over here and he says, but if you don't love a little bit more than what you're doing, you're loving the same as the tax collector and the pagan. It's a rhetorical device that he's using right here. Look at 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Jesus says that your bar is too low. And how do you know? Well, look at how low it is. He says, even the tax collectors and the pagans are nice to the neighbors. The dudes that beat up your grandma for her taxes and take a little bit more to give to the Roman government and pat his pocket, that guy waves to his neighbor when he goes out to get the paper from the driveway. Do y'all still get paper anymore? I don't know, is that all electronic? But he says, this is how even that person loves and we've been loving exactly the same. He says, the pagans, the one that doesn't even know the generosity of God loves like this. We are called to love greater than this. And why? Jesus says in another place that they will know us by our love. See, here's the thing. How we love makes all the difference. Y'all, I think we spend more time freaking out about abortion legislation law or this legislation law or COVID or politics or whether you should get vaccinated or not vaccinated or arguing with your crazy Aunt Karen about how critical race theory is problematic for school. I think we spend more time on these areas than we actually do loving people, radically loving people. And we fail to see that when we have these high belief opinions about everything, but we don't love, our credibility is gone. To the world that doesn't know God and has no sympathy to what we're talking about today, if you don't love, you have no credibility with the world around you. Ed Stetzer wrote a book that I would recommend to everyone in the room called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And in it, he cites some data on the perception of evangelicals. I could give you tons of data, but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna zero in here. Now, evangelical carries some baggage today. I want you to leave the baggage at the door so that I can use this illustration because the preacher said so. But as an evangelical, when I say we are largely evangelical, I mean defined historically that, uh, that we believe in scripture. We have a high view of scripture. We believe in the need to be born again, to follow after Jesus. That's what I'm talking about with evangelicals. Stetzer found that non-evangelicals with at least one evangelical friend found that evangelicals, 41% of them were hypocritical or 32. Actually, let me me phrase it this way. The non-evangelical, 41% of them said evangelicals are hypocritical. 32% said they're intolerant. 22% said they're arrogant. 21% said they're racist. Non-evangelicals with no evangelical friends, they were asked about positive traits they saw in evangelicals, and this is what they said. Only 8% of them said that evangelicals are principled. Y'all, we boast of our principles, and the world around us doesn't give a crud about it. Only 6% of non-evangelicals said evangelicals are compassionate. Only 5% said they're charitable and only 4% said they're ethical. 
When we don't love, we lose credibility with the world that is around us. The world looks at conservative evangelicals and says, if that is Christian, then I want nothing of it. And y'all, I'm talking about the scene across our country, what I'm talking about. Some of this may land very poignantly here and challenge us. Some of us, it may not be for us, but we need to lean in and ask hard questions about how we represent the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community that we're called to. And if some of this is unfair, I'm sure, cultural changes that are antithetical to Christianity, people don't like evangelicals for reasons that probably aren't fair. But I would argue that we know more about what we are against than what we're for or who we're for. It happens in every scene. If you talk about the United Methodist Church and all of our denominational stuff, the evangelical side of the denomination fight right now knows more of what they're against than what they're for. They push things aside and hurt people because we won't stand up for what we're for and we don't lead with love. And listen to me, your hot takes on X, Y, and Z on Facebook, they will get likes and comments from people in your own echo chamber and nowhere else. Because Facebook is designed to only feed you what you agree with or what rattles you up a little bit. And your likes and comments will be there because the people who disagree with you, the algorithm won't put your hot take there. And even if it did, it's not gonna win them over anywhere. They will dismiss you from the conversation because we don't lead with love. What if all of our hot takes are dismissing us from conversations that God calls us to be in? He calls us to bring Christ into these situations. And he says it in John's gospel, they will know you by the way that I love. See, in John's gospel, there's this wonderful section called the Upper Room Discourse. It's John 13 through 17. It's presented in John like it's all one night, but it's likely kind of a week or a couple weeks of teaching where Jesus is preparing their disciples to be for the day when he's gonna give up his life, he's gonna be killed and for him leaving. And so they're kind of freaking out in John 13, 17. You know, this section, it starts off with him washing the feet of the disciples and he gives these series of teaching. He's preparing them for what it means for him to leave. And in this section, his first indication of his impending death is John 13 and his first indication of him leaving. And his first major imperative after that is verses 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how the world will know that you belong to me. And I wonder if people know in community know about Marvin, but I wonder about how many people know that there's some real disciples following Jesus here at Marvin because of the way that they love radically in places that no one else will. That's where we're called to be, to love like that. Hospitality flows from this place. If we can press into those, we can love our family well. We can love in this community well. This is where we're called. And let me close with this idea. At the very end, verse 48, there's this, this tag on that's frustrating. It's like Jesus like, didn't know where to put it in his teaching, so he dropped it in there. But he didn't just do that, right? He usually has more intention. As if the bar wasn't raised high enough with this calling, Jesus includes this tag on in, Ma- in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now listen, perfection gets us all in a tizzy. We get cold sweats when we, and we try to move past these sections because we're like, I'm never gonna be perfect or we dismiss them because it has to mean something else. But what I want you to see here is this word perfect means complete and it means whole. What he says at the very end of this is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you is the same as the fullness of God's love being in you. That's what it means to be perfect. And Wesley would say a commandment in scripture is a promise that it can be done. And I just wonder if today at the end of this hospitality series, if we might just increase our desire to be perfect, to be holy, to be full of his love, to be so full that we would love those people that would slap our cheek, that we would love those people that would dare to disagree with our politics, that we would love those people that the world turns their back on. But see, here's the critical thing. We don't wake up tomorrow and just have that love. We can't just press a button. You can't just have an hour of your best devotional time and then all of a sudden love in this way. This is a high, high bar. It requires that we're not just religious folks that check out church every now and then. It requires that we are staying on the heels of the rabbi, that we are walking so close with Jesus that the dust off his shoes comes on us. It requires that we spend time with him so that we would allow his love to love us and to loving. Ed Stetzer has all kinds of data. He also shows in there that, for example, scripture reading, that there is less than 40% of regular church attenders that read the Bible once to twi- one to two times a week. And one out of five regular attending Christians never read the Bible. It's the same statistic of those that read it regularly. And listen, this is not about religiosity. Like this is not about, you need to read your Bible. This is to say that this is the revelation of God. This is the narrative of who we are in God's redemptive story. This tells us the joy of salvation that has entered the world in Jesus Christ. This tells us who we are and whose we are. This opens us up to our identity and our characteristic. And if we spend more time in Fox News and CNN and all of these other places than being disciplined discipled by the rabbi, are we surprised about how we live in the world? Come on, church, are you with me? Let's follow him so that our lives are so filled with his love that the world knows that he sent us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen.